I'd like to say just a word about the framework with North Korea that Ambassador Gallucci signed this morning. This is a good deal for the United States. North Korea will freeze and then dismantle its nuclear program. The United States and international inspectors will carefully monitor North Korea to make sure it keeps its commitments. Only as it does so will North Korea fully join the community of nations. That was President Clinton in 1994, announcing the signing of what's known as the Agreed Framework, an agreement between North Korea and the United States. Spoiler alert, the agreement fell apart after about eight years, and then four years after that, North Korea tested its first nuclear device. Some opponents of diplomatic efforts, whether with North Korea or Iran, often cite the agreed framework as so-called evidence that negotiating with rogue states never works. When the Iran deal was being debated in Congress, some of these opponents even used that exact quote from President Clinton to argue against it. Even memes of that quote circulated on Facebook and other social media platforms. So what was the agreed framework? Was it, as critics say, an example of the failure of diplomacy? Or an example of why we can't negotiate with North Korea? As it turns out, it's neither. The agreement actually did work for quite a while. And the reason it fell apart wasn't only because of North Korea. With rhetoric between President Trump and North Korea heating up seemingly by the day, the agreed framework has particular relevance right now. Coming up, we dive into the agreement and what we can learn from it for current U.S.-North Korean relations with three premier North Korean nuclear experts. This is Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation in Washington, D.C. I'm James McKeon, a policy analyst here at the Center. It's been an interesting week, not least of which because of this. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. He has been very threatening uh, beyond a normal statement. And as I said, they will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. So you might be asking, how did we get here? What's the history that led us to a point where an American president and North Korean leadership are trading such heated rhetoric at one another? Well, it goes back quite a while, but we'll focus on when things really heated up. We were on the verge of war in 1993. Uh, President Clinton was preparing to order the deployment of additional Patriot missile defenses and strike aircraft to uh, South Korea to protect our allies. Uh, and uh, only through the intervention of uh, President Jimmy Carter, who flew in, let's just say, with not, with, not with the full support of the Clinton administration, but with some, some deference from then, uh, negotiated a deal uh, with uh, Kim Il-sung that they would freeze their nuclear program. That led to an agreement which actually froze North Korea's nuclear program for eight years. That's John Wolfstall, a nuclear expert now associated with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and Global Zero who most recently served as the Senior Director for Arms Control and Nonproliferation at the National Security Council under President Obama. He's also on our Zillard Advisory Board, named after our founder, Dr. Leo Zillard. As we've mentioned, that agreement that froze North Korea's nuclear program for eight years was known as the Agreed Framework. During the Clinton administration, John worked at the Department of Energy, where he actually visited North Korea, implementing the agreement. 
At the time that the agreement was signed, there was serious concern that North Korea was about to produce nuclear material and use it for nuclear weapons. The crisis sort of started up in the beginning of the Clinton administration and the North Koreans threatened to withdraw from the NPT and that they were the first ones who had ever done that. That's Joel Witt, the co-founder of 38 North, an invaluable website that analyzes North Korea's nuclear and missile programs. Previously, Joel was the senior advisor to Ambassador Robert Gallucci, the lead negotiator of the agreed framework. When he says NPT, he's talking about the Non-Proliferation Treaty, an international treaty, effective since 1970, that helps to curb the spread of nuclear weapons. Only five countries, the United States, United Kingdom, France, Russia, and China, are recognized as nuclear weapons countries under the treaty. All other countries who are a party to it commit to not having or developing nuclear weapons programs. So North Korea announcing that they were going to leave the treaty was a really big deal. We had intelligence estimates telling us that by the early 2000s, the North Koreans could have enough physical material to build 75 to 100 nuclear weapons. The Clinton administration essentially had three options. One, do nothing and accept North Korea with nuclear weapons. Two, risk an all-out war by striking North Korean facilities and hoping it disables any nuclear program or technology that they have. Or three, try to come to a diplomatic solution. As John Wolfstall mentioned, option two almost happened. But then, former President Jimmy Carter met with Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of the current North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un. And that was the first step that ultimately led to the agreed framework. And glossing over some details, here's what the agreement did. First, the North Koreans agreed to freeze all operations at its Yongbyon nuclear reactor that was making plutonium that could have been used for nuclear weapons. The North Koreans also agreed to stop the construction of two other larger reactors that could have done the same thing. Second, North Korea agreed to remain a member of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. In exchange, the United States agreed to work with international partners to build two so-called proliferation-resistant light-water nuclear reactors that would have supplied energy to the North Korean people without the nuclear weapons risk. The construction of a nuclear reactor takes years, so in the meantime, the U.S. agreed to annually provide hundreds of thousands of metric tons of heavy fuel oil shipments to North Korea to supply electricity. But then, in 1994, some things changed politically in the United States that ended up having serious consequences for the agreed framework. The problem was not that the uh, negotiated agreement wasn't um, viable. The problem was, uh, almost immediately after the agreement was negotiated, uh, Republicans took control of the House of Representatives, something they hadn't done in almost 40 years. And very quickly, the deal began to unravel. The new congressional leadership, at odds with President Clinton on multiple policy topics, took issue with the United States having to pay for heavy fuel oil shipments to North Korea. They saw the payments as a subsidy for the North Korean regime and refused to fund much of what the U.S. had previously committed. The Clinton administration, in turn, began working with international partners to get the heavy fuel oil to North Korea. But that caused delays in oil deliveries. There were also delays in constructing the light water nuclear reactors. But on the bright side, North Korea was keeping its commitments not to produce plutonium, and this was verified by the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA. Then, in 2000, there was yet another political change. Good evening. 
Just moments ago, I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd President of the United States. That was then Vice President Al Gore conceding the 2000 election. Famously, that election came down to a grueling 36-day recount that in the end determined that President Bush had won by 537 votes in Florida. Those 537 votes turned out to be very important for the agreed framework. Joe Witt explained how that election changed everything. Unfortunately, when the Bush administration entered office, there were many people in the administration who thought the agreed framework was a bad deal, who argued that we could have done better, or we shouldn't reach deals with countries like North Korea. That hostility to the agreed framework, and any relationship with North Korea whatsoever, came out in President Bush's 2002 State of the Union address, where he included North Korea as part of his, quote, axis of evil, along with Iraq and Iran. North Korea is a regime arming with missiles and weapons of mass destruction while starving its citizens. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil arming to threaten the peace of the world by seeking weapons of mass destruction. These regimes pose a grave and growing danger. But it wasn't just the United States that was threatening the agreement. The North Koreans, while largely sticking to the letter of the agreement, were engaging in some nefarious nuclear activity. It became apparent at the time, uh, uh, and this is intelligence that was developed in 2000-2001, in that North Korea had uh, been able to purchase uh, Pakistani uranium enrichment equipment on the black market and begin to develop a uranium enrichment program. Uh, and while that wasn't expressly forbidden or covered in the agreed framework, it clearly was a violation of the long-term commitment for North Korea to remain non-nuclear. So here's the deal. Simplistically, you either need highly enriched uranium or weapons-grade plutonium to build a nuclear bomb. The agreed framework only covered plutonium. It didn't cover uranium. And though it had been known among the intelligence community that North Korea had acquired uranium enrichment technology from Pakistan, the Bush administration confronted them about it in their own capital in 2002. The North Koreans didn't take it well, and the agreement collapsed. You might be thinking, I don't see what the problem is here. The North Koreans were clearly doing something they shouldn't have been doing. Yes, that's true. But here's the problem. It could have been dealt with through diplomacy. In fact, because of the agreed framework, we had the leverage to negotiate a follow-up agreement to get them to stop their uranium activity. No one is making excuses for what the North Koreans did. I'm not making any excuses. We should have called them out and used the leverage of the agreed framework to get what we wanted. And if they didn't give it to us, we should have walked away then. So we made an enormous mistake then because... The North Koreans clearly wanted those two new white water reactors that were worth $5 billion, but we threw away our leverage. If you have an agreement that is being violated, um, you have an opportunity to force your uh, negotiating partner back into compliance. And we do this all the time with Russia and with other countries. Um, we negotiated the agreement on the underlying premise that a nuclear program in these countries is a bad thing for the United States. You don't have to look any farther than the situation today to understand that's true. And uh, you have a choice. You can either make the agreement work, recognize that countries do have leverage over us just as we have leverage over them, and you cut a deal um, that may not be perfect but is better than the alternative, 
um, or um, you uh, lose your control over the situation. You lose the ability to influence what's going on. In the end, we freed North Korea of all of its obligations, and they left the non-proliferation treaty. Without the agreed framework, they were free to produce highly enriched uranium and bomb-grade plutonium. And then, predictably, North Korea tested their first nuclear device just a few years later in 2006. They've had four more since. They could test another at virtually any point. But even though the agreed framework fell apart in 2002, it still had major benefits. For eight years or so, it held. And by held, it meant that the North Koreans didn't reprocess spent fuel, didn't separate plutonium, didn't build nuclear weapons, didn't complete the other two reactors, and weren't producing 100 kilograms of plutonium a year, which they otherwise were judged to be capable of doing. That's Ambassador Robert Gallucci, the same Ambassador Gallucci that President Clinton mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. As we said before, he was the lead negotiator for the agreement. Ambassador Gallucci, Joel Witt, and John Wolfstall all agree that, despite the agreement falling apart, we're still in a better place because of it. Here's John Wolfstall explaining. I have no doubt that without that agreement, North Korea would be much farther along in their nuclear program. They would have two very large nuclear reactors that could produce enough material for dozens of weapons a year. Um, and I think it was a, a real opportunity lost to lock in North Korea's non-nuclear status. But things could have been much better today, as Joel Witt made clear. I think everything that's happened since 2002, when it fell apart, is the direct result of the end of that agreement. There's absolutely no question in my mind. I do not believe that if the agreement had survived that North Korea would have conducted five nuclear tests. Unfortunately, we can't change the past, but what we can do is use the lessons of the past to shape the future. On Friday morning, President Trump doubled down on his, quote, fire and fury comments by tweeting, quote, military solutions are now fully in place, locked and loaded, should North Korea act unwisely. Hopefully Kim Jong-un will find another path. At the same time, North Korea has threatened to fire missiles near the coast of U.S. military installations in Guam. In one of our first episodes, we discussed what military options would look like in North Korea with our board member and MIT expert, Dr. Jim Walsh. Here's what he said. Let's say we attack them. Well, we better get all those nuclear weapons because the last thing you want to do is attack a country that owns nuclear weapons and uh, then still has them after the attack because they're going to be pretty angry. Uh, and, and so do we have high confidence that we can get every one of those nuclear weapons? We know exactly where they are and we would be able to eliminate them. Eliminate them? I don't think so. And even if you could get the nuclear weapons, uh, by the time you launched your first attack, uh, thousands and thousands of artillery shells would rain down from north of the demilitarized zone onto Seoul, Seoul being South Korea's capital and economic center and uh, home to millions of people. Uh, so you're not going to be able to stop that, uh, and not to mention the fact that North Korea has, uh, presumably has chemical and biological weapons, at least chemical bio, uh, weapons that they might use in retaliation. And so there is no military option here. You can't, there's no such thing as a neat and clean strike uh, where everything goes our way. If you don't believe Dr. Walsh that military options with North Korea would be disastrous, you might trust this gentleman. 
As you know, if this goes to a military solution, it is going to be tragic on an unbelievable scale. That was General James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense. Most estimates put the number of casualties of such a conflict in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And that's assuming it doesn't go nuclear. 80,000 U.S. troops and their families in South Korea and Japan would all be at risk. Even in the early 1990s, when North Korea didn't yet have nuclear weapons, the military options were dire. And the Clinton administration knew this. Instead, they turned to diplomacy. It has to happen again. If there is anything we can learn from the agreed framework, it's that a diplomatic solution is possible. Sure, it's a different leader and the situation has changed, but diplomacy is the only viable option. At this point, getting to an agreement may take time, but both sides must, at the very least, talk to each other to defuse tensions. The current policy is that the United States won't even talk to North Korea unless they agree to denuclearize in advance. That's an unrealistic policy, to say the least. To avoid serious miscalculation that could lead to the unimaginable, we should be open to just talking to them without any preconditions. Ambassador Gallucci puts it best. We don't prevent talks from occurring initially by putting preconditions on. I would think the best way to go would be to have talks about talks without any preconditions. If you enjoyed this episode of Nukes of Hazard, please consider giving us a rating on iTunes. And if you have any questions or comments, you can shoot us an email at podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at at nukes underscore of underscore hazard. Our Facebook page is www.facebook.com slash armscontrolcenter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon.